My name is Steve Westgarth, and this is The Engineering Leader. Hello and welcome to The Engineering Leader, a weekly podcast where I talk to folks working within the software engineering community, helping us to collectively raise the bar and build better software products for our customers. For the first time this week, The Engineering Leader is also being published on YouTube, so hello to anyone who is listening via our YouTube channel. Let me start by telling you a secret. You also write bad code. If you disagree, you may as well switch off. For those of you new to The Engineering Leader, this podcast is all about sharing best practice and insight. Over the last few weeks, I've really enjoyed talking to some awesome people and have had some great conversations. We've met folks working on iOS and Android, people working within healthcare tech, and we've also chatted about approaches to building really high-performing teams. If you're enjoying listening to the show, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Westgarth or just search for Steve Westgarth on LinkedIn. It would also really help me if you could share a link to the podcast so other leaders just like you can find the show and help us to collectively grow together. Now, without further ado, let's go to this week's guest. This week, I'm joined by Tim Condon. Tim is a software engineer and a member of the Vapor core team. He founded Broken Hands, a company specialising in server-side Swift consultancy and training, and delivers talks and workshops around the world. He is also the server-side Swift team lead at rearwendelik.com, the organiser of the server-side Swift conference, Vapor London, and Vapor WWDC meetups. Tim, thank you so much for joining the engineering leader today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, you know what? It's it's really great to talk to you again. It kind of feels like a while since we've had a proper a proper catch up um, and seen what's going on. Um, obviously, we've known each other for a few years, um, mm-hmm. and I guess Vapor's always been your thing. So, what's happening in Vapor? It has. Yes, Vapor has always been my thing. Um, so, Vapor is kind of undergoing um, some kind of. It's in the middle of a, like a big change. So, we're, we're shifting from using kind of old school futures and promises to Swift new concurrency model um, and kind of everything that that encompasses. So we released the async await, or at least the initial async await APIs back in October when um, macOS 12 was released. Um, and we're kind of evolving on that and seeing how that goes. So um, it's really nice because it means that the kind of barrier to entry for learning server-side Swift is massively reduced um, because if instead of, instead of having to learn a whole new um, asynchronous framework and tools. Um, you can just use Swift concurrency like you use on any other Swift platform. Um, so that's really great. Uh, and then alongside that, we're also doing a kind of big um, rebranding effort um, to kind of bring us into the kind of the modern world. Um, so we've had um, very similar designs and docs and um, that kind of stuff for the last few years now. It's really time to kind of lift those up make them consistent um, and kind of help onboard people a lot easier. So I guess some people would argue that introducing concurrency to a language in your in, in 2022 kind of feels quite late. If you compare that to, to other frameworks, maybe React or you know, something someone from JavaScript that have had that for years, you even .NET, um, you know, mm-hmm. had async await, you know, probably for, for four or five years. Um, do you think that's held Vapor back at all? Um, it probably has held it back a little bit, yeah. Um, the, the hardest part of, of learning Vapor and any other server-side Swift framework really has always been learning how to use features and promises. It's kind of a, it is a big learning curve, and there's kind of weird quirks around the differences between flat map and map and flat map throwing, um, and so that's always been a little bit of a stumbling block for new people. And yeah, it probably has um, kind of given people a bit more um, things to think about. And when they're learning, um, so it's been there, but we haven't really had an option because Swift hasn't had a concurrency model, um, so we've had to wait for that. Um, but I'm really glad we have because the way it's turned out has been phenomenal. Definitely, and I'm very conscious we've jumped straight in and we've started talking around <laughs> what the latest things are in Vapor. And I'm also conscious that some of the audience might not actually know what Vapor is. So let's rewind a little bit and, and start talking around what is Vapor and what does it really mean for server-side Swift. Yeah, cool. Let's go back then. So Vapor is a framework for building uh, server applications, web apps, uh, APIs, um, REST APIs, etc., uh, using the Swift programming language. Um, so it's kind of 
similar kind of level to Laravel, uh, Ruby on Rails, that kind of thing. Um, and it provides a nice high level abstraction uh, for building um, kind of any kind of server apps that you need for a backend. Um, so Vapor's been around since 2016, um, just after Swift was open sourced and released on Linux. Um, <clears throat> and we've been through four major releases since then. Um, so we're currently on Vapor 4, which has been out for the last year and a half now, maybe even two years. Um, and so we've kind of built up quite a big user base um, and some really nice APIs for building applications that feel like you're writing Swift code as opposed to writing a web framework and the language just happens to be Swift. And I guess you've been central to quite a lot of that build-out. I mean, you, you've told me several times that you literally wrote the book. So what yes. inspired you to to get involved with Vapor and, and the Vapor community and to go so all-in on the, on, on the framework? Yes, yeah, so I've been involved with Vapor since pretty much the summer of 2016. Um, and when it first came out, I think it was February 2016 was the first commit. Um. So at the time, I was um, working as a mobile developer, um, writing apps in Kotlin, Java, Objective-C, and Swift. Um, I was also doing some Python stuff um, for backend, um, a little bit of Ruby, um, and some JavaScript stuff. And I was kind of getting fed up of all these different languages. Um, like, I wanted to kind of specialize in something um, and really kind of learn something and a lot of the other languages that I was using at the time had their weird quirks, and I liked having type safety. Um, I liked having a compiler to catch things before you ship them, um, and that kind of static um, typing um, really kind of appealed to me. So as I was learning Swift, I kind of came across Vapor. Um, got some traction quite early on. Um, so I uh, started looking into it, um, and then decided to port one of my websites over, um, which was a blog. Uh, so like any other good engineer, I wrote a blogging engine um, from scratch using Vapor as the kind of framework to power it all. Uh, and that became one of the bigger open source projects using Vapor and became a bit of a demonstration project for all the different features that Vapor had. Um, and that got me involved in the community, got me involved in kind of contributing back to the framework itself. Um, I was writing articles about it. Um, I got... Um, I ended up writing a book and doing um, a video series for raywindlit.com, which is a big tutorial site for iOS and mobile developers. Um, and since then, I've just got more and more involved. Um, and then that led to me going full-time consulting and then joining the core team um, about a year ago now. Yeah, I think it was about a year ago, end of last year. And, and I guess, I mean, that was a big shift, right? Because, I mean, at the time you, you decided to make the, the shift to Vapor, and you say you were working as a mobile engineer, so I think you were working at the BBC at the time. And, and I guess, you know, that was, um, you know, quite a solid job. You know, you kind of you know, had a you know, good career prospect, you know, a good opportunity to stay within quite a large corporation and, and invest mm -hmm. very much in, in mobile development. I mean, that must have been a big shift for you to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go all out and go consulting on this new framework that, you know, may or may not take off. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a risky move. Um, the BBC is obviously a very stable place to be for the most part. Um, and it's a fantastic place to learn and grow because you're working on apps and code bases that are used by hundreds of millions of people. Like our install bases for some of our apps are enormous. Um, and the scale that we work at is um, it's difficult to match in most other companies. You have to go to kind of one of the really big tech companies to see that that scale. So there is a huge amount of learning there, and some work some work on some really great projects, um, and um, work with some really great people. Um, but I've been there for um, four years or so. Um, I felt like I'd learnt a huge amount, um, and I am not the kind of person who deals very well with red tape and politics. Um, and like any company of any kind of significant size, <clears throat> there's red tape in politics. Um, so I was kind of getting to the point where I was using this this framework. I'm getting really into it. I had some interest for doing consultancy work on the side um, and just decided to take the plunge. Um, I <coughs> Initially, I went down to four days a week at the BBC, which gave me kind of I think I was there doing that for six to nine months or so, um, which kind of gave me the opportunity to try doing full-time service, or at least one day a week, um, 
try seeing like what the appetite was for out there for consulting and training and and contract work and um also allowed me along with the book to build up a bit of a financial buffer so that i could say um when i uh, go full-time it gives it, i had a, like um a year's worth of living expenses that i could stretch out um so if i didn't get any work for a year i could still pay the bills still pay my mortgage um still live kind of a relatively normal life without having to start eating um you know pasta every night um so that kind of gave me the confidence to, to try that out and also in tech we're incredibly lucky um like the market is very much in favor of engineers um and if it all went wrong and vapor disappeared and i got no work um i could always go and find another job i was fairly confident that if i had to go and find another job in a month i could probably pick something that i quite liked um so we're very lucky in that aspect and then that obviously spawned Broken Hands, which is your, yep. your company where you go consulting. So what are you trying to do with Broken Hands? Who do you work with and, and what, what, what have you achieved? So Broken Hands is it's kind of a way of me um, providing my knowledge and expertise that I've built up over the last six years now working on Vapor um, and a, as a way of me kind of evangelizing Silverside Swift. So... Um, I wear many different hats. Um, I run training courses for companies. Um, so it could be that they have an iOS team that they want to build a specific backend, like a BFF for their um, iOS app. So I'll run a training course and teach them how to use Vapor. Um, I've also run training courses for companies that are kind of more in with server-side Swift. So all their backend is built with Vapor. Um, and they're recruiting backend engineers who have learned Go and Ruby and Java. Um, and so I'll teach them Swift and then Vapor. Um, so that's kind of the training aspect. Um, I do some consultancy stuff as well. So I advise a few companies on how to deploy server-side Swift applications, um, how to kind of scale Swift, um, how to talk to senior management about it, or I'll talk to senior management myself. Um, so I'll talk with CTOs and um, VPs and um, kind of, I guess, allay any fears that they have about Swift. Um, kind of go through some of the details, go through um, Vapor and how we kind of handle security incidences um, and kind of make sure they're comfortable with using Swift on the server. And then the final part is helping uh, companies build out server-side Swift projects and libraries and frameworks. Um, so um, I have a few people who work for me um, and we work on client projects, either building, working alongside their dev team or building them solutions for their own server-side Swift. So it might be they want to use server-side Swift. Um, it might be that they have a team that's using server-side Swift and they need some help. Um, or in some uh, situations as well, it might be they just want a back-end. Um, and I know them through some networking, um, and so I'll build them the back-end that just happens to be Swift. Wow. And I mean, it, it sounds as if that's been quite successful. You've obviously done that with quite a few companies now. It sounds as if quite a few companies are actually taking the plunge and, and moving into Vapor, which is, is really phenomenal to see. Yeah, it's the the conversations have definitely changed over the last three or four years. Um, it's definitely gone from um, how can I be sure that this is ready for production to more how can I use this in my company. Um, these days, there's less of a concern about whether Swift is around for the, the kind of the long duration, um, about whether it's ready for production in inverted quotes, um, and more about kind of the suitability for their particular use cases. Um, so it might be that um, they have a pretty unique use case that involves a lot of um, dynamic stuff, um, and um, or they want to do some kind of AI stuff, and Swift probably isn't the right tool for that that service. Um, or it might be they want to write some really high performance stuff. Um, and their current code is kind of consuming tons of memory, and Swift is a great um, use case for that. I, so, I guess building, yeah. I, I guess building that conference is still difficult, though, because you know, although you're right, I think Swift absolutely is around for the long term, but Vapor is is just a framework. And if you look back in 2019, um, you know when IBM decided to pull out of Swift as an open source language, <laughs> I guess that you know that sent shockwaves throughout the, the Vapor community and your. And, and right across you, know, everybody who's working with Swift and server-side Swift especially. Um, and I mean, actually, the software development community, I guess, stepped up in order to save Couture. Um, so you know, how do you how do you really build that confidence to say that, you know, Vapor, Vapor is here to stay? So, um, yeah, so when Couture kind of um, 
had its funding pulled. Um, it was it was uh, it was bloat the, the kind of server side Swift ecosystem, but it wasn't from the inside. It wasn't as bad as what the outside view was. Um, we Katura was kind of um, going down a kind of a different route to Vapor. Um, Vapor was kind of going all in on the kind of um, server ecosystem, so building on top of all of the. Um, APIs that Apple were providing, so like things like Swift Neo, um, and really trying to integrate into that environment. Katura were kind of more of a enterprise feel. They were moving a bit slower because they had enterprise customers, um, and they were trying to they were doing the kind of typical enterprise thing of building layers and layers of abstractions. So um, they weren't kind of integrating directly with the ecosystem. Um, so they were very different approaches. And also, um, Couture was obviously backed by IBM, which is a huge, huge corporation. Um, and as soon, as soon as IBM decided they were pulling fund, funding, that was it. Couture was essentially dead, dead in the water until the community stepped in. Vapor has always been a community project. It's been a community-driven framework. Um, we have tens and tens of maintainers. And we have hundreds and hundreds of contributors. So if... Um, it were to be the case that, say, I stepped away from Vapor or any of the other core teams stepped away from Vapor. Um, there are plenty of people there to kind of step up and, and take that role over. Um, and we're not beholden to one company. We have lots of different sponsors. We have lots of different people working for us. So if one company decides that server-side Swift is no longer for them, it's kind of like we're more diversified, really, with our risk. Um, so we can kind of take that and, and move and evolve and, and find others to fill that role. And I mean, that's really great to see. I mean, we have seen examples in the mobile community where you have had your um, particular frameworks or, or particular technologies backed by individual companies, and those companies have pulled away. I mean, I remember a few years ago uh, with, with PARS, for example, mm-hmm. which was predominantly yeah. backed by Facebook, and Facebook decided, no, we're stopping support for PARS, and that caused a huge amount of, of issues for you know, a great number of companies and, and, and individuals. So... I mean, I guess you're, you're you're protecting that within within Vapor. Is there more mm. the software development community needs to do in order to protect itself and isolate itself from from those sorts of issues? Yeah, I think like the the first thing the software development community needs to do is be very careful about dependencies that it takes, um, and that goes for any kind of language and any kind of software and any kind of platform. Um, Node.js is a very good example of how things can go wrong very quickly um, in terms of like malicious packages being inserted into the dependency chain um, and that causes huge problems but then Node.js is a huge community and they can move very quickly to fix that um, so that's kind of um, one way in that the software develop- developer community should be careful in the way they take dependencies I think there's definitely a habit certainly for smaller companies or kind of startups um, and junior more junior developers to kind of try and find a dependency to solve their problem um, and it might not might not be the, the best thing. It might be better to just write it yourself. Um, you should always be very conscious about pulling in a dependency, and that includes things like Vapor as well, um, and make sure you're comfortable with um, what that dependency does um, and what would happen if that dependency no longer worked. Um, so we have to be very careful in the server-side Swift world in that any dependencies that we pull in, if there are kind of security issues, we need to make sure that we can step in and fix them if the maintainer of an individual package can't. Um, so as any developer should, they should make sure they can take that, that role if they need to. Um, so it's making sure you're kind of comfortable with what the dependencies do and whether you actually need them or not. It is something that, that companies have a, a huge issues with. I mean, so I, I speak as the, the global head of engineering for, for GSK. And, you know, we, we've got your a growing development team um, and we're very dependent upon developers um, you're know, doing the right thing and understanding their, their space and when you're looking at things like you're know, introducing new dependencies and getting new packages or whatever there is quite a lot of trust that's got to be placed in individual development teams to say that they are actually doing their appropriate due diligence and, and making sure that what we're bringing into the code base is, is the right thing to do and it's not going to cause us any issues you've worked with lots of developers before you know what strategies have you used as a leader to help people to make sure that you know they they are doing appropriate due diligence um so there's a number of things you can do uh, the first is obviously take a look at the code base does it look well written um generally by looking at um the code base you can see if it's 
a project that's worth using quite quite quickly. You know, does it have tests? Does it have good test coverage? Um, does it have CI? Um, is the code well maintained? Is it well documented? Um, does it read well? Um, can you take a look at the code and actually work out what it's doing? Or is it all obscure variable names that you can kind of understand what's going on? Um, so you definitely kind of need to look in, into that and see what's going on. Um, the other thing that you should really do as well is try and abstract away your dependencies to a, to a degree. There are some cases where this isn't possible, but there are other cases where you should definitely do it. Um, so if you're pulling in, say, um, a networking library to make network requests, you should definitely abstract that behind a protocol or an interface um, because not only will that make writing tests much easier and reduce kind of your dependencies on your tests, it means that if that project were to disappear, then all your code doesn't know about that dependency. It's only that kind of one interface that knows about that dependency. And that makes it much easier to switch to a different networking library um, if that networking library disappears. Um, and it makes it easier to test. So that's kind of definitely a good thing that people should do. Um, and the other thing that I think people should do, or certainly companies should do at least, is kind of throw support more behind open source projects. I think we're definitely seeing a bit of change of wins over the last year or so and the log4j um or log4g and um, i think yeah log4j um that kind of vulnerability issue and the the focus on support that companies were providing for that is definitely shining a light on how open source is funded and how companies are supporting packages that they're using so if you're a company that's using a package and you're entirely dependent on it um, are you helping support that project? Um, whether that's engineering time, whether that's submitting pull requests back, whether that's financial support, um, there's lots of ways that companies can help um, support the projects that they're using. I, I think there is you know, a huge benefit in that open ecosystem. And I think your know, large corporates are, are starting to understand it more and starting to kind of get the idea of why, why the open source community is, is such a powerful thing. I mean, after all, it will be impossible for one company to develop absolutely everything they want to use. And mm -hmm. we're much stronger together than we are you know, as, as an individual entity. Um, when you've been talking to senior managers in your consultancy role, how, how, do, you, how do you explain that to them? Um. <clears throat> I think uh, generally money is the easiest way, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you can say to them, the, um, if you want to build a framework for writing backends, it's going to cost you, you know, tens of thousands of man hours to, to build and write that. Um, if you support an open source framework that's already written and, and suits your needs, um, you can save significant amounts by using the, the work that people have already done. But that doesn't mean that you can't just take it for free and um, uh, forget about it. Um, plenty of big companies that use open source projects end up having to either fork them or tweak them to suit their needs. Um, and most of those things can be upstreamed. Um, so it might be a new feature. It might be bug fixes. It might be um, tweaking configuration. It might be making the docs a bit better. Um, a lot of those are valuable to send back. Um, so it's kind of ensuring that senior managers know that open source goes two ways um and i think most of the, the people i've spoken to are kind of fairly aware of that and um are happy for their engineering teams to spend a bit of time contributing back um and recognizing that it's effectively working for the greater good because if no company contributed back then they wouldn't have a framework to build with yeah, it's it's so important, and I think it's it's something which which really does you know it, it is getting traction, but it still needs it still needs more evangelism to kind of you know, to promote your kind of your all of those benefits. Just want to bring the conversation back to um, to server side Swift, and I mean I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, over the last few years, we've obviously seen your huge development in the space. And I guess, you know, um, I was reading on one of your blogs, actually, and um, that maybe one of the pivotal moments in the last couple of years was the point that um, Ted Kremenak, um, you know, produced his roadmap for server-side Swift. Um, just wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit to the roadmap and kind of, you know, where, where you think the server-side Swift is, is heading to and what, what's next in the, in the area. Yeah, so I should probably clarify that that roadmap was actually the roadmap for Swift in general. Um, and the roadmap to Swift 6. But pretty much every point on that was heavily focused on server-side or at least heavily beneficial to server-side. Um, so Swift itself has kind of been um, <clears throat> going on a bit of a, a journey. Um, so we've had like the last 
four or five iterations of Swift have been kind of nice and incremental. And we've had some big changes with the kind of the great renaming Swift 3, um, Codable and Swift 4. Um, Swift 5 has introduced a load of new um, language features. Um, but kind of migrating to Swift 6 is going to be a, um, a big challenge that's going to really kind of take Swift to the next level. So the focus on Swift 6 predominantly is going to be around um, data safety uh, and concurrency. Um, so um, in Swift 5.5, um, async await was released, and that provided the current concurrency model for Swift um, using the async await keywords, um, similar in the way that C Sharp works and, and JavaScript works, at least at a very high level. Um, under the hood, it's very different. Um, Swift 5.6 and 5.7 have started to introduce more kind of concepts um, for protecting data that's read across different threads um, and in different concurrent environments. So there's a thing called sendable, which is basically a way of marking your data as um, essentially thread safe, so that it can be accessed from any asynchronous context without being worried, without worrying about it um, affecting something in a different um, thread. And those kind of things will give you compiler errors if you try and make uh, data accesses across different threads, um, which is huge. You know, no other language, no other mainstream language, should I say, really has anything like that. Um, and so you'll be able to, your compiler will be able to tell you if you have um, risk conditions in your in your code, which is huge. Um, and that's going to really kind of solidify the safety of Swift. Um, and there's some other things where Swift is introducing, like distributed actors. Um, so Swift 5.5 introduced the concept of an actor, which is kind of part of the sendable um, journey. And an actor is a way of um, isolating access to a class or an object um, across threads. So any, anything inside that um, object can access its own properties synchronously, absolutely fine. But anything outside that um, object needs to access it asynchronously because it might be coming from a different thread. It might have to queue up and kind of wait for all those different um, queries to come in. Um, so there's a concept now of distributed actors, which is doing that effectively across processes and across computer instances. So you could have an instance that's running in uh, California, an instance that's running in New York, an instance that's running in Europe, and all three of those will be synchronized um, with their data accesses. Um, and that's guaranteed by the compiler, um, which is you know phenomenal. Um, it's something that uh, Erlang, Erlang has kind of played about with, um, but Swift is really kind of um, pushing the boundaries of what can be done, which is awesome. And those kind of things are really useful for server-side Swift. So I've also noticed that Swift now has a VS Code extension. Um, how important do you think that is for the future of Swift beyond iOS? So I think it's definitely an important step. Um, I wouldn't say it's a game changer. Um, but Swift has been available on other platforms uh, like Linux since 2016. Um, so it's been supporting different variants of Linux since 2016, and more and more variants have been added over the years. And it's been running on Windows for the last couple of years um, fairly well. And there's a few edge cases that need to be sorted out, um, but it's getting there. So I think having an extension that for VS Code that shows that the language can be written um, on other platforms is a very important step for kind of convincing people that isn't just an Apple learning language. Um, the extension itself is phenomenal. Um, I've been using it for the last few months um, since it was released, essentially. Um, and it does a very, very good job of making Swift development uh, easy. Um, it supports everything you'd expect. It's very similar. It has all the same features as Xcode because it uses the same underlying uh, engines, but also integrates well with other um, Visual Studio Code extensions. So one of them um, is the remote development um, experience, which allows you to quickly spin up your um, Swift application in a Linux application, a Linux environment using Docker. So if you want to just try out and see, does it work on this variant of Linux with this version of Swift, it's a single command you're running and you can debug and you can uh, run your code and you can put breakpoints in, you can step in. And that makes it really, really powerful. It's something that kind of no other IDE currently has. So I think the, the extension is a very important step. I think um, Swift uh, and specifically server-side Swift and Vapor do a pretty terrible job of um, selling themselves as a, 
um, a language and a framework for multiple platforms. Um, I think Vapor is currently doing its kind of rebranding, as I mentioned, and part of that is going to be doing a better job of evangelizing ourselves, um, a better job of showcasing all the companies using Vapor, um, talking about the different projects and products that use Vapor at very high scale. Um, <clears throat> and I think Swift can do the same. Um, Swift recently announced that the website was getting open sourced, and Swift, so Swift.org will be open sourced. So I hope as part of that, um, that will allow us to enable us to put um, Swift on the server on the kind of very front page. So I'd love to see you go to Swift.org and it comes up with Swift and then there's a, a link for the client and a link for the server and right on the front page. So anyone going to that thing will immediately see that it's used for across different um, applications. So it's an interesting time and I think um, I'm really excited to see where it goes. You, you mentioned evangelism there and how important that is to, to the Vapor community. Um, I noticed recently that you, you've really started kind of, you're pushing that on the various blogs and trying to get people involved in, in evangelizing about the framework. Um, what, why is that so important and how can people get involved? Yeah, so like um, kind of like any other open source projects, we're generally reliant on word of mouth. Um, so whether that's people writing blog posts about us, whether that's people doing conference talks about us, whether it's doing video tutorials on YouTube about us, um, that's the way we get our kind of examples out there and, and showcases out there and kind of get heard by people. Um, so we, the Vapor core team um, announced a kind of a big program of um, uh changes uh, a few months ago and part of that is the rebranding part of that is improving the docs part of that is selling ourselves and one part of that is going to be a vapor evangelist program so we want to kind of recognize the people that are out there spending their own time um, talking at conferences about vapor doing video tutorials about vapor writing lots and lots of blog posts about vapor and just kind of give them a bit of recognition really um, because uh, like i said open source works both ways and they're doing a great job selling vapor and kind of getting people interested in it and showcasing how to use it so we want, want to kind of just give back a little bit so that will be we'll kind of give them a bit of swag so we have vapor t-shirts and vapor stickers um which again helps if they're doing video tutorials because it kind of um, allows us to kind of advertise ourselves a little better um and gives them a bit of recognition and we can kind of link to them on our website uh, and showcase and kind of give them support so if they're talking at conferences um i've done hundreds of conference talks these days um so i can give them advice kind of talk through them kind of go through their slides um kind of give them some like pointers and tips for talking at conferences just to kind of give them that, that kind of feedback and encouragement and recognition for kind of what they do for vapor awesome and talking of conferences, you did organize the server-side Swift conference back in 2019. Now, obviously, yeah. we've all come through pandemic and in-person events haven't really been a thing. But is that something we can expect to come back anytime soon? Yes. Uh, so we had the first server-side Swift conference was 2018. The second one was 2019. And then, obviously, coronavirus put stops that. But we are planning on being back. Um, I'm hoping this year, end of this year, um, we're just kind of trying to get some uh things in place and, and signed off before um we announce anything so it is something we're actively playing um i'm hoping we can have a 2022 edition um and stay tuned for some interesting news about that can't wait to see that and then talking about conferences you know so again i'm very passionate about in-person events and you know, I, I also about you're talking various conferences and i think it's you know for my own career it's been something which has, has been really powerful to actually get up in front of an audience and to, to to talk about what i'm into and what i'm working on and all of those things it's something i, I actively encourage your know, members of my team to do um you know be it getting out of conferences to do networking or you know maybe even to go up on the stage and then actually give a conference talk in their own right. What um what made you think that you really wanted to to get up on stage and, and talk? You know, what was it what was it that really pulled you into that? Um that's a very good question. <laughs> um I like I've I've always enjoyed kind of public speaking um and being able to sell something I'm passionate about and, and talk about and kind of demonstrate is is very appealing. I think um it really kind of focuses your knowledge. Um, so if you're going to go up on stage in front of a few hundred people and talk about a subject, um, it really kind of makes you make sure that you know about that, that subject. Um, and it's a great way of kind of 
broadcasting information and knowledge. Um, YouTube videos are great, but people can kind of skip through them and kind of fast forward or just ignore them. Um, blog posts are good, but people can skim them. But a kind of a conference talk is a really good way of engaging with people and kind of um, talking to people. And you kind of have that almost immediate feedback because you can kind of tell from what the audience is doing and if they're interested and you can kind of tweak your talk and change the level of this app if you're going to different conferences or if you see that it's just going over people's heads or if people are bored you can kind of tweak it and go into more depth or um, kind of go at a higher level or slightly slower pace and so it's a really unique way of um, talking to people and yeah it's the, the networking conferences are the, the best place to meet people and talk to people and um Personally, it's a great way for me to catch up with old friends and talk to people using Vapor. Because um, I always get people coming up to me and talking about Vapor and asking questions and kind of getting that face-to-face time that you wouldn't really get for a, um, a framework that has users all around the world. Um, and from a professional point of view, conferences are fantastic for networking. Um, they generate tons of business for me um, because I can go and talk about a subject or be there and um know about people talking about subjects or run workshops and that just drives um kind of business for me it gets people thinking about it it gets people knowing that i do training courses uh, or consultancy work it gets my face out there and people kind of know that i know what i'm talking about um, and that just brings people to me to ask about running training courses or oh we have this one problem or we're thinking about doing this could you come and talk to us for a day or so um so from a professional point of view they're, they're great for generating business so if, if there was an engineer listening who was thinking, hey, you know what, I, I really want to kind of take that step and maybe you'll get up on, on the stage, maybe give a conference talk or or you'll maybe maybe get involved in that aspect of the community, what, what advice would you give them? Um, the first thing I would say is work out what you're interested in. Um, so something to talk about. Because if you're not interested in the subject you're talking about, it comes across very obviously on stage. Um, the second thing I would say is that People who are thinking about giving talks or trying to give talks assume that they have to give a very, very technical talk about something very, very new and very, very exciting um, and give the most amazing talk that will blow everyone away um, that no one else can know about and talk about. And it really doesn't have to be like that. You can give a talk about something like a problem that you've had and how you've um, fixed that. Or you can give something kind of more holistic about how you're uh, running engineering teams or about how you can ensure that you have good design or there's tons of um, topics that you can talk about that don't have to be here's how to debug C at a kind of just reading by just reading assembly code. Um, people want a variety of topics and they want to, to find something that people that they're interested in. And just like speakers, um, conference attendees are not going to be interested in everything. So if the, if the talks are all, here's how to build a Swift UI application, um, then the conference attendee is going to get fairly bored. If it's kind of differences and um, different talks uh, that apply to them, um, then they're going to get interested. So if you have a unique perspective on something, whether that's solving a problem or um, overcoming something at work or um, a new solution you found or a new framework you found, um, just give a talk about it. Um, I think also a good thing to start at is meetups as well. There are loads of meetups around the UK and around the world, um, and they're a great, great way to get into talking because instead of talking at 200 people in, on a stage, you'll be talking at you know, 10, 20 people in a, in a room, in a meeting room. Um, and it's a lot more relaxed, um, and it's a great way to practice talks. And I like to try and give every talk I give at a conference at a meetup first because um, you kind of learn so much from that first run through in front of real people. Absolutely. And I, I think it's something that, you know, people get very nervous about maybe getting on stage for the first time or, or getting in front of people just to, to kind of talk about something. I think, as, as you say, you know, it does really kind of focus the mind to make sure you really know your subject matter and know what you're talking about, which is, um, you know, is, is, is really important. But I mean, so rewarding. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think, you know, oh, yeah, hugely yeah. rewarding. Um, um, and, and I, I, I think the software development community, I mean, so so engaging and welcoming as well. I mean, you you almost kind of don't see that in any other community, you know, anywhere that I've seen anyway, you know, a community of people who are you're literally willing to welcome you with open arms and give back so much advice. Yeah, that's definitely. And that goes, so if you're talking at a conference, um, what you've got to remember is that most of the people in the audience would never dare stepping on stage. And they only have admiration for you going up on stage and talking about something you're, you're uh, interested in. So, before you've even said your first words, you're already kind of 
impressing people by getting up on stage. Um, and as you said, like the iOS community and the Swift community that I've experienced um, have been incredibly welcoming. Um, I was at a conference last week, um, Swift Heroes in Turin, and um, a couple of people had technical difficulties on stage and the attendees just clapped when they got them sorted and were really supportive. Um, so I'd say to people thinking about getting in, don't worry about it. Like um, everyone makes mistakes. I've had plenty of conference talks that have gone hor horribly wrong, but people have been nothing but supportive. And the fact that you're getting up there is better than most people. Absolutely. Um, so talking of learning, um, I noticed that Swift is participating in Google Summer, Summer of Code this year. Um, mm -hmm. How important is those sorts of activities for the community? Um, so Google Summer of Code is uh, a project run by Google to enable students to contribute to projects. Um, and Swift takes part, has taken part every year, I think. So um, we've seen some really interesting topics come out of that. Um, so one of the ones that I've been using is the Swift tracing stuff. And that's a library for tracing, um, or distributed tracing, sorry. So that's a library for tracing requests across different microservices um, in a way that works across all different frameworks and projects. Um, so if a library implements uh, Swift distributed tracing, it doesn't matter what tracing backend you, you use and how many projects you use. They all use tracing, then the tracing links up, and you can see your requests across different microservices. So there have been some really cool projects that come out of that, um, and really useful projects that will be used. Um, and some of the ones that have been pitched this year include the Kafka client, I think, um, some work on backtraces for crashes. Um, so they're a really good opportunity for um, people wanting to get into Swift and Swift on the server to work on a dedicated problem with really good mentors um, for a few months and ship something that's actually really useful and used by lots of people. Um, so it's a great thing for the community and the language. Absolutely. Um, and, and I guess you're just turning our attention back to, to Swift and to um, your Apple and kind of what's new and kind of what's coming downstream. You mentioned Swift UI, which is, I guess, one of the, the game changing things that um, has come out in the in the Apple ecosystem in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where where do you think we're at now? You know, WWDC is up, you're coming up in a couple of months time. Um, you know, where, where do you reckon we're, we're going as a community and, and what's next? So it's interesting because the server-side Swift world is all open source, so we pretty much know what's coming up, um, and nothing's really much of a surprise to us. Uh, we know what's going to be in Swift 5.7, what's going to be in Swift 6, and the kind of the, the high-level goals. Um, so I think from a kind of an iOS point of view, um, I think there's some work to be done around Swift UI and kind of um, filling in any of the holes that are that require companies or developers to have to go back to UIKit or AppKit. Um, I think that's an important part. Um, I think a some kind of data framework would be really good. So currently there's core data um, for um, iOS and, and uh, macOS, but it's not a very nice experience to use that from Swift. Um, so some kind of Swift-specific framework for data would be really great to see in a similar way that Swift UI came along obviously. Swift specific framework for writing um, UIs. Um, I would love to see focus on tooling and improving um, things like Xcode and the compiler speeds and the compiler messages and um, improving source kit and getting autocomplete more stable and uh, adding more refactoring tools. Um, so those kind of the improving the developer experience um, would be a really great thing to see. And you mentioned you already know kind of what's coming down downhill in Vapor. How much of those announcements from Apple will impact upon the Vapor roadmap? Um, probably none, I'd say. Um, so we know that the the old, uh, goals for five point seven are, which is uh, improving uh, checking around sendable and um, stuff like that. Um, and we know from the roadmap what the top level goals for Swift six are, whether that's after 5.7 or whether there's a 5.8 5.9 and 5.10 we don't know um so kind of that's the way that things will affect it um we are in the very early stages of planning vapor 5 um and our aim is to release that with swift 6 um so if swift 6 comes out in september um which i, I doubt it will because i think Swift 5.7 will be september but if it came out in september that would dictate the kind of pace that we'd have to develop in if it comes out in two years time um then we either have to make a decision and release it early or wait and continue evolving Vapor 4. 
So those are the kind of things that will affect vapor, um, I think. But we kind of know what the, the technical aspects are going to be. And, and how important do you think it is for you to align some of those announcements with your Apple's announcements and kind of what's happening around DubDub and those things? Um, I think it's a good opportunity for us to kind of jump on the marketing bandwagon and the interest bandwagon because there'll be a lot of people kind of following the news and seeing what's going on um, and it allows us to get vapor out there. I think in terms of aligning with uh, Apple's PR is, is never a good idea because things are so secretive right up until they're announced. Um, so if we're trying to predict what's going to happen, um, we might struggle or if we're going to try and predict dates. Um, so I think we're now at the stage where vape is stable enough in its own thing that we don't have to worry about trying to um, make sure we're aligned with Apple. We can kind of do our own stuff, and that's worked out pretty well over the last couple of years. So I'm happy to kind of keep doing that. And, and I guess pre-pandemic, you know, particularly around Dub Dub, you would have had um, vapor meetups and all sorts of things out mm-hmm. in, out in the US. Um, I guess obviously through pandemic, we've seen Dub Dub kind of move online, and you know, obviously there's been less opportunity for community and kind of getting together. How have you how have you combated that within the vapor community? Yeah, it's it's a hard question. Um, there's no real right answer there. Um, I think um, DubDub being online is fantastic for a lot of people because it enables them to attend and they would never have been able to attend before. Going to DubDub is not cheap. Um, I mean, the tickets themselves are $1,600, and that's before you've accounted flights and then staying at hotels in San Jose where everything's bumped up because it's DubDub week. Um, So I don't know if there is a right answer. I think the online stuff, which we're going to say DubDub will be online again this year, um, I think there's more that can be done to fostering an online community. Um, I think I would personally love to see face-to-face stuff back in some form, um, just in terms of meetups. I think Vapor has been pretty lucky in that we've always been a very widely distributed community. Um, so from the very early days, we were always distributed across the world. We're used to um, running events and um, stuff distributedly and online. Um, and whether that's like um, watching Dub Dub together and talking about it in the chat, uh, whether that's kind of just helping each other and um, hanging out in some of our random channels to kind of get to know each other better. Um, so we've kind of we've been there, but I would say that nothing kind of beats face to face time. Um, yeah. So it's it's hard to replicate that, and I don't know what the right answer is. I just hope that we get the chance to kind of have that central um, meet up place for everyone iOS and Swift and um, related with WWE again. Um, otherwise, the Subset Swift conference will have to take that place, um, which it did do pretty well a couple of years ago, to be fair. Um, it's the kind of the one place where everyone from the Subset Swift world comes together. Um, so we have people from Amazon and Apple and MongoDB and um, other huge companies who are using Subset Swift attending, um, and we get to um, attending and talking. Um, and you get to kind of network and talk to them, and we've had some really cool things spin out from that. Um, so I'm hoping more of that. Yeah, and absolutely. And and I guess you know um, something I'm also keen to explore with you before we wrap up is you know, you're you're in a really interesting position because you're um, you're running a small company, um, mm-hmm. but you're also engaging with some some huge enterprises. And I know you referenced earlier on your part your reasons for doing that is some of the red tape and politics you kind of tend to get uh, you know within within large organisations. But but I guess there are also problems with with running a small company because you are you're managing director, you're salesperson, you're responsible for your own income, your own destiny. And that that kind of all all rests on your shoulders. Um, you know, how how do you find that? Is that is that a pressurized environment to kind of be in? You know, is that something you'd recommend to others to kind of look as a model to kind of to to, to use for themselves to, to to turn into their own careers? Or you know, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's that's a good question. Uh, it's definitely a pressurized environment. Um, I at a high level, I'm responsible for my company uh, and my team working for my company. Um, I'm responsible for Vapor and essentially everyone using it. Um, I'm also responsible for the Subside Swift team at RayWendlet.com and making sure everyone in that team is happy and working and productive and uh, has no issues. So there's a lot that I have my hands in a lot of um, pies um, and there's a lot of stress that comes with that. Um, I think something that I'm not particularly good at and I should be better at and trying to make better effort is learning to switch off. Um, there are very few instances where things are immediate and need immediate attention. 
um, and the kind of world that we live in now with smartphones and notifications and, and the streams of emails and direct messages and Slack and Discord is things need immediate attention. And so learning to kind of take a break and switch off and say, I'll look at that on Monday. Um, it doesn't matter. It's quite a hard thing and something I'm trying to work on um, and focusing on stuff outside of work as well. Um, I've done the whole working for 80 hours a week for six months in a row, seven days a week, and you can do it for a little bit and then you'll burn out and you will be very unproductive for many, many months. Um, so having making sure if you do want to do it, um, you set time aside for you to do stuff, whether that's other hobbies, uh, whether that's meeting up with friends, being social, going to gigs, sitting in the garden, going out on bike rides, playing guitar, um, doing something other than the coding that interests you. Um, I highly recommend. I think in terms of actually doing it, it is highly rewarding. Um, I love being in control of my work and what I do. Um, I love being able to dictate the hours I work. It's The flexibility is phenomenal. If I want to take a few days off and go traveling, I can do that. If I want to stop work at 2 p.m. and take my dog out for a walk, I can do that without having to have a middle management kind of bearing down on me, worrying about whether I'm productive enough for that day. Um, so there are definitely benefits and trade-offs, and you just have to work out if it's right for you. But for me, it's it's fantastic. Like um, I love it. I love the being kind of at the forefront and working out what I can do and dictating that um, and learning to deal with the stress and worrying if I can pay people or not. And I mean, I guess that that is you know really powerful. The fact you literally are at the forefront of tech, you know, particularly in the server side Swift space. I mean, that must be really rewarding, right? Yeah, it's like it's it's unique. There's very few places in computer science and software engineering and Swift even that you can be one of the people kind of leading that that charge for that particular niche. So I'm very lucky to have found my niche um, and found a niche that I enjoy and have been lucky enough to be able to capitalize on that and really kind of take it by the horns and drive it where I want it to go. Brilliant. Well, Tim, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, I wish you um, great success with the next releases of Vapor. Um, and I'm sure we'll get you back onto the podcast at some point in the future to talk more about Vapor and server-side Swift. Thank you very much. It was great catching up with Tim and learning more about what's happening with Swift on the server. If you're interested in finding out more about Vapor, I would highly recommend Tim's book, Server-Side Swift with Vapor, which is available on Amazon. That's it for this week. If you're listening to the podcast and will be interested in coming onto the show as a guest, I would love to hear from you. Just drop me a note on LinkedIn. In the meantime, remember, you also write bad code. If you disagree, you may as well switch off. My name is Steve Westgarth. And this is The Engineering Leader.